Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic, what else, perspective. Today our guests will be recorded, and there are four of them, three pre-med students and one first-year medical student from the great states of California, Georgia, Indiana, and Texas, who were present at the SEEK conference put on by the Fellowship of Catholic University Students in the first week of January 2019 in Indianapolis. We're doing another special edition with all three co-hosts here today in studio to discuss whether or not it's a good idea to encourage your children and other young people to go into medicine in the year 2019. You know, we were titling this episode, Mamas, Should You Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Doctors? Of course, that's a takeoff from the old 1978 Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson song, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys. And we're our only listeners old enough to know what Sing that it. song is. Sing it, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's where I draw the line. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. No, but this is a serious question for 2019. We pose it because there's so much negativity, much of it from physicians themselves. So... Here's a, a bonus trivia question where you're going to get the answer right away. Oh, nice. For every 10 physicians who are asked today if they would recommend to their children to go into medicine, how many out of 10 say they should not? I'll give you a hint. It's a high number. Yeah. Seven. Seven out of 10 physicians recommend that their children not go into medicine. So f- we're going to go through uh, some of the reasons that are being put out there why people shouldn't go into medicine. And in the rest of the show, we'll cover why we think in many circumstances you should. So one of the big topics, in fact, it's the topic of this year's Catholic Medical Association annual conference in September in Nashville, it's, it's physician burnout. Over half of physicians report symptoms of burnout, and there are three key symptoms. They might have one, two, or three. Number one, emotional or a physical exhaustion. Second, cynicism, starting to look at patients as objects. And, and then finally, losing a sense of personal accomplishment. You know, sadly, even pre-medical students experience more emotional and physical exhaustion than their same age peers. So they already have one of the three symptoms of burnout. And we should point out, burnout's not fatigue. It's not, I've just, I worked, it's been a long week, and I need the weekend to relax. That's not burnout. Burnout doesn't get better after a nice vacation. Burnout is, it's not a temporary state. This is really a long-term, almost biological transformation that takes place. It's something that you can't really get yourself out of easily. And what we're learning, have learned, is that you can't get yourself out of it, period, unless you either physically leave the system you're in or the system changes because burnout is a system-level problem. So to blame it on the physicians is, is truly blaming the victims. And finally, corporations, medical corporations, clinics around the country are starting to realize this. And part of it is because of one of the great new things of the computer age, the electronic health record. Out of a show of hands here, there's three of us. How many people's lives got better with the electronic health record? Ooh, there's a paucity of hands in the air. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, none. <laughs> negative, negative hands. <laughs> yes, it, it, it doesn't. And in fact, studies show that for every minute that a physician now spends face-to-face with a patient, they spend two minutes on a computer or with administrative tasks. So we've, we've talked about this before with our nursing colleagues and that nursing, like medical practice, has been completely transformed into data entry. Yes. So many nurses spend most of their energy, instead of touching and caring for people, typing on a computer. You go to school for an awful long time to type in things into the computer. Yeah, I could just become a medical scribe out of high school and, and start doing that. Another thing that's been lost is autonomy. <laughs> we talked about autonomy in the last show, but in, in the good sense that physicians now only one-third own their independent practices, down from 47% of physicians five years ago. And all three of us you're listening to, we are in that blessed third. Yeah, we, we have our own bias, which I'm so glad we have. Um, <laughs> yes. That's probably why the, the only reason we have energy or interest in doing a radio show, exactly. because everybody else is so burnt out. <laughs> but, you know, not long ago, I've lost track, but I think, Tom, you and I are similar age, maybe 10 years ago, 
physicians being employed by hospital systems in mass numbers wasn't really thought of no. outside a couple of the big places like Mayo Clinic or Cleveland sure. Clinic. But it certainly wasn't mainstream, whereas now the overwhelming majority of physicians finishing their residency training are going to be employed by a hospital and system. And they want to be. They, I saw a statistic in, in kind of my cohort of, of trainees. I graduated medical school about six years ago and then did residency after that, um, 96% would not go into private practice. 4% or less went into private practice. In family medicine. Yeah, not even wow. your own practice, just into a private group. So most people are going into an employed practice, which for many of our listeners probably don't appreciate the difference, but there is something about, you know, especially when you've got a stressful, stressful job um, and you're working long hours, when you feel like you don't have any control over your surroundings, over your ability to care for the patients, to provide good care when you're kind of forced into a situation where you cannot provide the care that you want to provide, that leaves you feeling extremely helpless on top of already being burnt out and tired. And then there's the whole thing in medicine of asymmetrical rewards. Once I read this, it's like, oh, yeah, we know all about it. Have you heard that term before, Andrew? I haven't heard it said like that, but I've seen it because even just thinking about my experience, I, I had finished residency and started the practice, and it was not three months in. I had two different people I graduated with out of 10 text me and say, how hard was that? Because what I'm doing right now is worse than I could have imagined. Oh, my gosh. Well, the asymmetrical rewards, you know, here is referring to the fact that we are expected to succeed with every patient. And when we do, you know, there's no add a boy, add a girl. But we make a mistake with one, and then we are to be punished sometimes severely. So there's not the equal benefit risk thing. No. It's like you're supposed to always be successful. And that, that's a hard burden to carry. Well, think about even just child rearing, you know, and the the way discipline and encouragement, positive and negative feedback have have really what we found through psychology and studying that. And it, it, you just realize it's not applied, especially to medicine as a profession. No, not, not at all. You know, we can't neglect the fact, uh, and this is not unique to medicine, but this concept of really going into mass amounts of debt in order to achieve an education, whether it's in medicine or whether it's something else. But a, a troubling statistic, the average medical student now graduates with almost $200,000 in student loans. And it's probably worth pointing out, to be a physician, one goes to college and gets typically an undergraduate degree, and then goes to medical school. That's four years for the most part, with a few exceptions. So it's eight years of post-high school education for which they're going into debt. Then they're going to do residency training for a number of years, which they're paid, but not paid very well. They're still learners with increasing roles of responsibility and levels of, of, of autonomy. And when they're in residency, they're working 80 hours a week, getting paid about $14 an hour. Right. I think that'd be high for some of them. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that, you know, there's this thing waiting for you at the end of the line, the thing waiting for you is massive debt. And your 30s. <laughs> right, because you lose your 20s. Your 20s are just gone. Yeah. yeah, you do leverage your 20s. Good um, good thing the 20s are not the best years of your life, because if they were, then, <laughs> you know, don't tell me. I think another f interesting phenomenon with medicine, and particularly when I think about, you know, advising my own kids, is you, you really have to decide at about 19 or 20 that I'm going to pursue this. But you may not realize that that was a mistake until you're in your late 20s. So it would be, you, you go through medical school thinking it's a great idea. You pick a specialty, do a residency thinking that's a great idea, and then you finish and start to practice in some, you know, some form or another. And then if you realize, oh, I wanted to go left, but I went right, it's too late. And that has to contribute to burnout because there's no escape. There's no escape from the debt, and there's no escape from those years that you spent training in this one very specialized area of the world. I read this uh, interesting quote from a lawyer who advises physicians. He wrote in the Wall Street Journal, quote, Sadly, I now advise young folks who ask me about a medical career. If you're smart enough to become a doctor, then you should be smart enough not to become a doctor. <laughs> End quote. And, and to uh, support that point, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant can start seeing patients 
usually five to 10 years earlier than someone in medical training can. And during that time, they're making a, an average of $100,000 a year without being in great debt. So there's a way to have a controllable lifestyle, see patients, and, and make a good living. So that's one thing that some people are opting for now. So how hard is it to get into medical school? You know, I had a trivia question a while back on, is it really harder to get into vet school than med school? And we showed it's actually, it actually is harder to get into medical school. And the class admitted this year, the 2018-19 freshman class, there are almost 53,000 applicants for just under 22,000 positions, which means 41% of students who applied got in. And a few more female than male, 52 to 48. And it's remarkable, given that litany of negativity that we just... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, despite that. Why are these brilliant young people, probably much smarter than the three of us, why are they lining up uh, when the chance of getting a medical school is so poor? I'm I'm surprised it's that high, tell you the truth. uh, Which is a good thing, which has been going up still a little bit. Uh, year by year. And we're going to listen to interviews from four of these uh, students. Interestingly, among Catholic universities, uh, Notre Dame has the most number of applicants. They had 276 applicants. And they were 42nd on the list of schools, which means 41 universities had more pre-med students applying to college than 276 of Notre Dame. Number one, UCLA had 1,014 college seniors applying to medical school. Uh, That's just incredible. And my alma mater, the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. 852. At number two. I'm looking for Ave Maria on the list. I'm not seeing I'm sure Michigan Tech University isn't on the list. We had (laughs) seven apply my year, and it was a wonderful thing. So let me ask the trivia question before we go to a, a break, and that is, it's related to our topic, according to the American Association of Medical Colleges, Students who apply to medical school have the best chance of getting accepted if they major in which of the following five areas. So one of these areas has the highest acceptance rate on this list. Is it majoring in biology? Is it majoring in science other than biology? Maybe majoring in humanities and the social sciences? Or there's even health majors separate from these, or finally other non-science fields. Which one of those do you think has the highest acceptance rate to medical school? Well, in the last segment of the show, we'll give you the answer. And right after this break, we'll be back for more on Dr. Doctor. We're back at the SEEK conference with another pre-medical student who's going to tell us about why he's interested in medicine, but first he's going to tell us who he is. James Redmond, you are where in your training? So I am graduated from UC Santa Barbara uh, with a Bachelor's of Science degree in Cell and Developmental Biology in spring 2017, and I currently serve as a focus missionary at Boise State University. Very good. So... James, I'd like you to give our listeners an idea of what Catholic pre-medical students are are thinking these days. And first, I'd like to ask, what inspired you to go into medicine in the first place? Interestingly enough, for me, I kind of always remember wanting to become a physician all the way back to at at least fifth grade. I just always kind of, you know, the classic thing of I like science and I loved helping people. (laughs) You bring those things together, yeah, I was interested in medicine. And so at least that was kind of the the initial thing that was prompting me towards medicine. So there's never been a moment that kind of confirmed for you that this is where you belong? It's just been a small series of incremental on the way to being a doctor? Yeah, I'd say it's definitely the latter. If there was ever a single moment, I think it would be when I was shadowing a group of physicians, um, specifically residents at a local hospital as a senior in college. And I just remember, you know, leaving Santa Barbara Cottage Hospital one day and just thinking like, wow, like that life looks really difficult. And even knowing that, I still want it. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of a good confirmation is once you understand and really have, you know, at least indirectly have experienced the, the difficulties of something and you still want it, I think that's a good sign that it's, it's something that you're, you're meant to do. That's a really good sign. I think in your work as a fo- focused missionary, you have matured beyond you know the average person who's just applying to medical school out of college, so I think that'll serve you well. My, my last question for you is, what do you foresee, being a Catholic going into medicine, as being the most challenging ethical or moral issues you might face? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the big three that come to mind are abortion, euthanasia, and contraception. I would like to think that of the three, in a unique way, it might be contraception because that has just been adopted wholeheartedly by, you know, more or less every aspect of our culture. And really, in terms of any demographic, it seems like Catholics are the only ones that are opposed to it at this point. So to be against contraception, a lot of people will probably just laugh me off as just completely ignorant of what, you know, they, they believe is, you know, clearly a, a good thing and a, a good thing for women's health uh, and for society overall. So I think that will be very difficult in terms of even people welcoming conversation about, you know, whether it be natural family planning or just about, you know, the natural ways to plan out children and, and the spacing of children and things like that. So, and, and why, you know, speaking to my attending physicians or my, the faculty at medical school about why, yeah, I don't believe that contraception actually is good for women's health and is good for the patient and good for families overall. James was quite impressive. As part of this experience, those of us from the CMA there offered mock medical school admissions interviews. And when I interviewed James, his answers were all home runs. He has thought things through so well. And, and there you see a positive example of a young Catholic wanting to go into medicine. If I'm on the selection board, uh, he's getting in. Why? I, it's rare to hear such a young person speak with such, um, I don't want to say to say so articulate because that sounds like it just was pretty, but he spoke with such purpose and sort of such depth and I was just listening to him. I can't imagine standing in front of him. If you tell me that he was 6'5 with great hair and handsome, I just say that's not fair. The statement he said that struck me the most, because someone else actually ends up saying this, is it looks dif difficult, but I want to do it anyway. Yeah, that's called a calling. <laughs> you know, when, when you weigh the pros and the cons and you put them on paper and reasonable people may pick something else, but you can't help but you want to do it anyways. That's a calling, and that's a gift. And so if we are looking to give advice, unsolicited though it may be, to parents and to young people considering medicine, if you're doing it because of prestige or because of money, run. Run the other way as fast as you can and don't turn around. There, there's a lot of better ideas if those if those are your goals. I mean, the the amount of time, not only the time and training, but even after you get out, I don't really know a lot of doctors with a wonderful work-life balance. And it's the same thing with, I, I would make an analogy at least to priests. I don't know a lot of priests with wonderful work-life balances either, because you've more or less dedicated yourself, and many of us have taken an oath to provide care for people who need it. And the day when people stop needing care is the day you're going to have a great balance, and I have not seen that yet. <laughs> well, we talked about this a little with the uh, the physician-assisted suicide. I mean, there was a there was a time, and I think sadly that time may have passed, where we entered uh, as professionals into a covenant with society. Yes, and and our responsibility was to care for people. And it didn't matter if it was yellow fever, we rushed in and many of our colleagues died, you know, it, but it didn't matter. And th the trade-off for that willingness to, to sacrifice our lives and our families was that we were held in esteem and there was economic reward for it. But mainly it was, it was a sense of I'm called to do this and society is going to reward me by treating me well for doing it. And with employment and money and time off and all of these things, we've somehow lost sight of that, I think, as a profession. Yeah, to become, as Chesterton called, wage slaves. <laughs> Whereas it used to be the work itself was its own reward. You know, taking care of patients, very fulfilling for most of us. Now, this event where I, I did these interviews called SEEK, this year, there were over 17,000 people at the Indiana Convention Center from around the country. Actually, the world, many European countries were represented there. And over 12,000, or about 12,000 of these were college students on fire for Jesus Christ and the Catholic faith. And when we were there, the CMA had a booth there. And we were one of the busiest booths. There were over 200 booths of different apostolates, different groups uh, reaching out to Catholics. And over 200 pre-med students signed up to get connected with the Catholic Medical Association. And we also had a lunch breakout session when we spoke on 
finding mentors in medicine and about joy in medicine. And the room held about 300 people. Well, the room was full 10 to 15 minutes before the talk, and then students started sitting on the floor wherever they could. We had 450 to 500 people in there, people spilling out the doors, just listening. And they they were so on fire. Many of them were so excited to hear. Some of them said they wanted they want to be Chris when he grows up. They want <laughs> when they grow up. Chris already grew up. They wanted to be OBGYN, <laughs> but they would ask, you mean a Catholic really can become an OBGYN doctor now? Several of them thought that wasn't even a possibility. Right. I get calls, no exaggeration, several times a month from students, usually medical students that are just about to start that process of choosing a specialty, and they say, now come on, honestly, could you be a Catholic OBGYN, or do you have to sort of wink at a nudge and, and, and uh, go ahead and prescribe and go ahead and tie tubes? So it's really sad. I mean, the system will tell them that they can't do it, but I think we can tell them that they can do it and they should do it if that's their calling. And this year with the CMA, we're starting a big mentoring initiative and actually now starting to partner with Focus in both medical missions and in reaching out to mentor pre-med students. You know, we talk a lot on the political realm, what would the country look like if Catholics actually voted Catholic? Mm. I think we could say, what would medicine look like if physicians actually practiced Catholic? It would look a lot different, wouldn't it? Oh, please God. Let's listen to our next interview. Hannah, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Uh, Hannah, can you tell our listeners where you're in school, how far in your training? Sure. I am a fourth year at Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta. Uh, I'm pursuing a degree in biomedical engineering. And Hannah, what is it that inspired you to pursue a career in medicine? So uh, over this year of applying to medical school, I've had to think about that a lot. Basically, I truly feel that, uh, particularly as Catholics, that we are called to serve others. And throughout shadowing and volunteering and all these experiences, I am certain that the way I want to do that is by being a medical professional. Also, throughout my entire life, I have very much been taken care of by others, and I feel a need to give what I can offer and to give back because of that. Has there ever been an experience that you've had in helping make this decision that just really affirmed you or warmed you inside or that resonated with you that said, yeah, I belong here? The number one experience that comes to my mind is volunteering at the neonatal intensive care unit at a public hospital in Atlanta. Through that experience, I've seen a lot of joy and a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. And it's kind of this raw, emotional, uh, human experience that really calls me to medicine. It's this opportunity to enter into a relationship with your patient while they're in this very vulnerable state and with their families. Yeah, so th- those experiences from that. So it's, it's difficult, but you want to do it anyway. Oh, yes, exactly. Uh, it's, the, it's the challenge uh, of medicine that really calls me to it. What do you foresee in your future as the greatest uh, moral ethical challenge? I guess I would say uh, particularly the issue surrounding contraception and abortion. Uh, and I say that because I'm pretty interested in OB-GYN and think I would really, really love uh, to go into that specialty someday. And so uh, that's something that you would be dealing with a lot. And that's something that's been on my mind and my heart um, for a while. I, th- I think that will be uh, a huge thing to deal with. And after the break, we'll be back to discuss Hannah's interview and our take on it. Here we are at Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we're uh, where we just listened to Hannah Gersh, a biomedical engineering major. And I was asking each of the students if they had any moment when they knew that medicine was for them. So I'm going to ask my co-hosts the same questions. Chris and Andrew, was there a moment when you knew medicine was where you belonged? You know, it's been so long. They had just invented electricity back <laughs> when I was. Uh, so it's been a while. Um, <laughs> so I forget. I, I distinctly remember I was a music major, and I left music and was sort of searching and wanted something to do. And I, th- I was very passionate about music, sadly not particularly talented, but very passionate. And I it just sort of wandered into something that required a lot of work that you could throw yourself at, like piano concertos. Um, <laughs> um, and, and I remember just feeling like 
this is something that I, I could actually do. And this might be fun. This might be something to do. I, that aha moment for me was different than my aha that I wanted to be an OBGYN, which was completely mentor-based, which I think happens to a lot of students, maybe in their other aha to be a doctor in general. But in my choosing OBGYN, I had a mentor. His name was Dr. Patrick Duff. He's still at the University of Florida. And I remember listening to him talk and thinking, I just, I just want to be you. I, I want to talk like you. I want to dress like you. I want to be able to sit down next to a patient and just exude empathy the way that you do. Where do I sign up to get to, you know, how do I learn to do that? I want to be that. That's the kind of person I want to be. And I think I chose him more than I chose the specialty. And he just happened to be an OBGYN. I don't know, Andrew, what, what it, was yours like? Well, I, I was just thinking that speaks to the importance of mentors. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I, I think in somewhat of a, a similar way for me, my mentors were my parents. So my, my mom and dad are both family docs up in Michigan. Oh, so you were brainwashed. More or less, <laughs> you know, and I, for me, there was definitely no aha moment, except maybe when I got into medical school, I said, okay, I guess that's a sign, which is a blessing, <laughs> you know, but leading up to that, it, it was almost, for me, just a natural progression, almost as though I, I make an analogy to being raised in the faith. It's something that is part of your life that, you know, you see mom and dad doing this stuff, you hear them taking patient calls. You see some of the joys and the challenges. And the one thing that always struck me was how they, I mean, some people, they, they joke, you have to wonder if you're making a difference. But I never have to wonder. I, I saw that they were making a difference. Mm-hmm. And one thing that they always reminded me, and I think my siblings as well, you know, to those who much has been given, much is expected. And for me, I, I found in medicine a happy marriage between using gifts that God gave me and then being able to concretely help the person in front of me. And so there was never an aha moment, but just maybe maybe years of little ahas building on each other that encouraged me to, to pursue that. Hannah talked in her interview about the importance of shadowing. What do you two think? Was that important for you? And what would you advise to parents of high school students or college students regarding shadowing? Yeah, I think we can't say enough to our colleagues who may be listening that arguably that may be one of the most important things they can do for the profession, for people. We can only help so many patients as individual physicians, but if if we get good people to carry on the mantle long after we're gone, we'll help many more people. And I know all of us sitting here mm-hmm. spend a lot of time with learners shadowing, and it, and it is hard. It, it takes some work, and we're busy, and a lot of times you think that maybe you don't want to do it. But uh, I, I shadowed, shadowed an uncle that uh, is a pediatrician who's now retired, and I remember just watching him and thinking, this is the most amazing thing in the world. I mean, he walks into rooms, and he touches people, and he examines them, and he talks to them, and this is, I've never seen a job like this before. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't what you see on TV. This is really amazing stuff. But you, it takes a, a shadowing experience to get to peek behind the curtain a little bit. Yes. Uh, so I would say to our colleagues in particular, shadow, give students the chance to see what it is that you do. Well, and that, that kind of piggybacks on the whole focus mindset as well, where it's a multiplicity, but, you know, there's one person that you touch, and they touch one person, and someone else is touched by them. And so just going through it in that way, especially for those of us who kind of want to carry the mantle of making healthcare more ethical and providing a place for people of faith who, where they can practice medicine, I think the only way you're going to do that is by passing it on to the next generation of doctors. Yeah, we could, we could probably use the analogy, if, if we want to be great evangelists, just be great Christians, right? If we want to recruit people to medicine, we just need to be great doctors. And part of doctoring is teaching and mentoring, and we've got to do it. And I can't emphasize enough, because it was a mistake I made, I never once shadowed a physician before I went to medical school. Hmm. Horrible mistake. So I'd recommend, you know, the high school students, college students considering medicine, find a physician you trust who has the same kind of view on the dignity of human life and spend time with them. And 
the vast majority of them will be happy to have you because anytime someone really wants to learn, it's a blast to have them with me, even if it slows me down some. And the patients typically like it too. Oh, I, I'm helping out this young protege of Dr. Mullally or Dr. Stroud. I mean, it's a win-win-win for you, for the student, for the patient. Uh, so, so be part of that triad. Well, let's go into an interview from the great state of Texas. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. I'm with a pre-med student, Tara Beavers. Tara, tell us where you're studying and how far you are in your training. I'm in Texas at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm a senior biology major. Excellent. I was a senior biology major once. So, Tara, what inspired you to want to become a physician? When I was younger, it was just kind of one of those jobs that makes your parents happy when you say that that's what you want to do. But then whenever I got more serious about what do I want to spend my life doing, um, I started thinking um, a lot back and forth. And I think just knowing that doctors serve everyone, um, they don't care where you come from, they want to serve you and help you heal. And just like Jesus healed others, he went to the poor, he, he washed the feet of his disciples, like he really cared for them. And to me, it's just one of the best ways that we can serve as the hands and feet of the Lord and reach people who maybe otherwise wouldn't be able to get that type of care. Are there any doctors who you've seen who kind of model what you just described a doctor is? Whenever I was in school, like middle school and high school, they would sometimes do physicals at our schools. They'd come to us because I grew up in, my town was kind of a rough town, or it could be, and so a lot of people couldn't afford to go to the doctor to get a physical, so they'd come to our schools and give us like $20 physicals so that we could get it done, so that we could play sports because they knew that sports were good for us. Not only do they keep you healthy, but they also keep you um, off the streets. And that was a big problem in my hometown. And so that kind of inspired me to do something similar, um, you know, to serve other people. I want to be a pediatrician. So one thing I want to do is serve kids who might not be able to go to the doctor otherwise. Have there been any experiences in shadowing or observing or being in a medical situation when you left that situation, it just felt like this is where I belong? I shadowed a pediatrician before and she was just really friendly and she made um, all the kids that she worked with really happy. No one really likes going to the doctor, but she made it a lot better for them and just her smile and I think she's Catholic too. Yeah, just her smile and the way she talked to them made them feel like like for those few minutes she was with them, like she really cared about them and sometimes that's just what people need. And finally, looking forward to your future medical career, what do you think is going to be the greatest moral ethical challenge you'll face as perhaps a pediatrician? Um, so something that I've seen is um, this place that I volunteer, it's a great place. I really love volunteering there and I love all the kids, but um, since my school is very secular, I don't think they really think about the implications of um, saying that kids can be whatever gender they decide. And even though most kids grow out of that and it causes increases in suicide rates and a lot of mental health problems down the line and just people don't respect, I guess, the way that they were created. Um, they don't respect the way that God made them. And to tell, indirectly, tell God that he's wrong, or directly, depending on how you look at it, um, obviously causes a lot of problems. And I don't think people realize what they're doing. And if I want to be a pediatrician, sometimes I get worried that a parent will get really mad at me if they say, I want my kid to get these hormones, or I want them to be on puberty blockers because they want to be this other gender. I want them to have this surgery, but they're harming their child. Chris and Andrew, this was a remarkable interview. What what strikes each of you about what Tara just had to say? Uh, I was surprised how <laughs> how much she's kind of looked into the future and, and seen some of the challenges that she might face, even not having been to medical school yet. Yeah, it's remarkable how insightful she is. It, and at the same time, I was I was taken with, of all of the things she could be thinking, uh, she's worried about parents demanding puberty-blocking drugs. 
That's sad, isn't it? I mean, she should be worrying about, can we get vaccines in the poorest areas of the world? Can we get food for hungry children? And and that's not what she's most worried about. She's worried about uh, gender dysphoria because it's taken over the national discussion. And well, she's seen it where she volunteers. And yeah. You know, I think this, this hits on the important point of, you know, conscience protection, which is not really the point of this show, but... You know, she opened her interview with wanting to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Oh, beautiful. I mean, that's, that is perfect. That's beautiful. What is she worried about? She's worried that someone else is going to take her ability to do that away from her because she can't violate her conscience. And so that is one of the biggest things I think we are all about in the CMA is trying to just, you know— there's there's the whole fight in in the public forum about what's right and what's wrong, what's science, what's not. That's all that has a legitimate place. What we're interested in is I just don't want somebody to steal away my ability to care for the people God's entrusted to me. Right. And in her desire not to violate her conscience, it's really her desire not to harm her patients. Yeah, which is good medicine to begin with. Exactly. But, you know, word word to the wise for pre-med and medical students and even resident physicians that are listening to us maybe – you need to think about these things before you think about signing that big fat contract with the hospital system, right? Because they want you to come be a member of their staff, but they may not want your conscience issues to come along with you. And they're going to be very tempted to say, uh, maybe not tempted, maybe blatantly say in their contract, you leave your Catholicism at the church. When you work here, you're not Catholic, you're a doctor. Well, that's what the New England Journal of Medicine said just last year. They said if if you have a trouble with abortion, you should pick radiology or something else. You don't belong in medicine. Right. And so there are uphill battles, but that's not to be discouraging. I think, if anything, it's to be encouraging because all the more we need people with any kind of moral foundation, especially Catholics, to get out there and to stand up for the truth because your patients deserve it and other people are not giving it to them. But I'll tell you, listening to her, on the other hand, it's very exciting. I want her as a pediatrician in in my community. Oh, amen. Uh, Yes. That's what I loved about being at this conference. It was so energizing to meet dozens and dozens and a couple hundred students like this who want to be doctors like that. We'll be back with our final interview shortly after this break on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally, and I am here with my co-host, Dr. Tom McGovern and Chris Stroud, and we are recording live, (laughs) recorded, from the Studios Redeemer Radio, and I am here to introduce Tom, who's going to give us the medical trivia answer to our question today. Yes, so if you are a student applying to medical school, what group of majors has the highest chance of getting in? Is it biology majors? Is it other science majors? Is it humanities and social science majors? those majoring in health, or finally, the fifth group, non-science fields other than the ones listed. That was always my least favorite option on multiple choice tests, other. Other. Well, other isn't the right answer here. Since we learned that 41% of students get in, one group had 45% as the highest, and it was not biology, which is what I majored in. It was actually science majors who majored in something besides biology. Actually, in health had the lowest, so 31%. All the others were between 36 and 45%. So the data really suggests you have a pretty good, just as good a chance relatively of getting in, just major in something you love and get all the prerequisites in. Chris, what did you major in? Biology. Andrew? <laughs> Biology. Oh, are we ever My school boring. only had seven majors at the time, so it was either that or Greek, so I picked bio. I actually went to uh, med school with a Greek and Latin major from MIT. MIT, Greek and Latin, really? His spelling must have been great. And you know what he went in to do? He first did a neurosurgery residency. Then he did an orthopedics residency. My word, this guy likes school. Oh, my goodness. So I I was stopped recently by a listener 
who uh, you just reminded me of this, who uh, said, I know, I know, doctor, doctor, I listen to it. And I said, oh, I'm one of the co-hosts. And this is an elderly woman. And she said, are you the smart one or the funny one? <laughs> are you serious? So, I'm just a simple biology major from Florida State University. Just proud to be on the show. That is so funny. So what advice would you give to students listening about what to major in? Well, I, I would say pick, obviously, whatever you love, but don't feel compelled to go in science. Obviously, you're going to end up with a minor in science on accident just from the prereqs. But I've found that especially um, admission departments frequently like somebody with, with a non-science major. That's, that would have been my guess to the trivia question. Go ahead and major in history. Get all the science done. I bet you you stand a better chance against you know, we're three out of three bio majors, <laughs> nothing special here, especially when you're applying to a professional school, you want to find a way to stand out. So I'd pick something you love, but even non-science. You know, I had a chance to spend a little time on a medical school admissions committee, and it was horrible. Every application was phenomenal. Every student looked great. They all had perfect grades. They all had perfect scores. And you find yourself, just human nature, desperately trying to find something that makes one applicant somehow look different than another applicant. And a lot of times it was their major. I think many times it was their major plus kind of their life story. What have you done? Where, where have you traveled? What have you learned? What makes you different than this other stack of applications that I have to go through? And, and I think it's common for students to think, I'll have to have great extracurriculars. Not necessarily great, but you need a story and you need something that makes you unique and stand out. You know, something I learned from a previous guest on the show, Brandon Brown, who does uh, med school admissions interviews, is that every student needs to place in the mind of every interviewer a sticky note. And they have to figure out what is on their sticky note, what's one or two things that's on it. And I had a great sticky moment sticky note moment when I was doing the mock interviews at Seek, one of the students, I was asking about her leadership experience, and she gave the example how when she was on a uh, soccer team, how she used to say sorry every time that she did something wrong, and it drove her teammates nuts. So they started this sorry jar, and every time she said sorry, on the field, she had to put a dollar in it. At the end of the year, they had their team party based on that. And she showed <laughs> some humility, some self-awareness, and some change. I said, I would always remember that story about your sorry jar. Because how often in interviews do they show s some sign of humility and self-awareness? I thought that was beautiful. Well, so everybody has a story, and uh, you have to be able to tell it. And it takes a little practice sometime and some forethought to tell it. But everyone has a story. Well, let's go into our final interview. Now I'm going to interview a first-year medical student who's attending here, Matthew Crash from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to Dr. Dr. Matthew. Hi, thanks for having me. So Matthew, I'd like to give our listeners a feel for what uh, young pre-med and medical students are thinking now who are uh, active members of the Catholic faith. So I'd like to uh, ask you, what inspired you to pursue healthcare as a profession? So for me, a big uh, influencer on my decision was I majored in theology and biology at Notre Dame in my undergrad, and I was really intrigued by the theology of the body and kind of just how uh, integral the body is to expressing everything that is in our heart and in our soul. And the necessity of uh, both the healing of the body and the soul is kind of what uh, inspired me from wanting to heal souls as a priest to wanting to heal both body and soul as a physician. So you initially wanted to become a priest? Is that what you were thinking in pursuing theology? Yes. I was kind of leaving that on the table with, with a theology major and trying to continue to grow in my faith because, uh, you know, obviously you can never know too much about, uh, about your faith. So it was something, uh, an option I wanted to leave open, but it actually inspired me even more so to continue to look more into medicine, and that's what I ended up choosing. Can you think of a specific moment you knew that a healthcare profession or medicine was what God was uh, inspiring you to do? So actually, uh, this sounds like a, a bad plug for the CMA, but <laughs> I was actually on the fence for a long time I couldn't make up my mind when I brought it to prayer. I wasn't really uh, getting through with anything. It just kind of 
It felt like I was just continuing to go along this uh, medical route. And I knew that I loved science, I loved working with other people, but I wasn't really uh, convinced that I should go to medical school until uh, this summer before I started. Um, I was at the CMA boot camp and just meeting uh, good Catholic physicians and other Catholic medical students who shared my values and were really passionate about serving people in healthcare kind of sealed the deal for me and I didn't really have all the kind of qualms and misgivings that I had for the previous years and went into medicine a lot more confidently. So it sounds like a big part of your decision was experiential, being around other people and you just felt at home around them like these are my kind of people? Yeah, definitely. It was, uh, I, I kind of felt like I was a little bit alone in my values. I even, you know, uh, there's a lot of great Catholics at Notre Dame, but um, even in my, uh, in my clinical ethics class that I took, you know, I was very surprised that, you know, even fellow uh, Catholic pre-med students were, you know, expressing that they didn't think euthanasia was such a bad idea. And um, other uh, disturbing uh, commentary um, from students. There was a lot of great students in that class too, but seeing that kind of led me to worry that I would be uh, alone in medicine to a certain extent, besides uh, some of my family members that I knew, but kind of, uh, yeah, ex experience with getting to know um, all these students who shared my values was really inspiring. So we've heard now from four students going into or just starting their medical school training. What advice, though, I think that's what the show is really about, what advice, Andrew, Chris, would you want to leave with parents and young students? Uh, I guess even maybe the best thing is, what are the best things in medicine for you? I guess I would open up with saying, I'm very happy I went into medicine. I'd encourage people to go into medicine, but it's got to be a calling. If you're looking at it superficially, you know, frequently in high school, you'll look at, okay, how many years does it take? How much do you make? Can I get in? Is this a good idea? Yeah, that, would, that equation doesn't work. No. It, if you looked at it that way, I would wager that you will probably be dissatisfied with a medical career because the balance sheet doesn't look awesome. However, if you go into it because it's a calling, it is an awesome opportunity for a path to heaven. My favorite things to consider, one, it is really interesting. Many jobs, people work, and they're good, honest jobs are not interesting. So it's a blessing to have an interesting job. Two, I get to meet people every single day. Every single day I get to meet new people and have conversations with old friends. I really enjoy that. Three, you do get to help people. And four, I'm going to throw in a fourth one. Sometimes you get some really good wins. Not all the time. I'm in family medicine, so it's not like every day you get to deliver babies and people are happy. That's a blessing, too. It's some days you don't get a lot of wins, but other days, man, you get some really good wins, and you made a huge difference in their life. And when that's palpable, that's a special joy. Well, I mean, I think I can say, Andrew, without reservation, that many of your patients are glad you went into medicine also. <laughs> You're here. Because uh, I see them. Yeah, I, I think I have the most amazing job in the world. I mean, I, I simply cannot imagine at this point in my life doing anything else. And I actually did something else for a while. I left practice and then came back. But I came back um, more as a vocation and a calling. So I think that's my sort of advice to parents and to, to potential doctors is that don't figure out if you want to be a doctor figure out what's God calling you to do. If that's medicine, then run towards it and never look back because there's no need to look back because the hardships and the problems and the list of negatives that we listed won't matter. That's the same advice if, if you feel like you're called to be a teacher or a police officer. But ask that question. Ask, God, what do you want me to do? And by the way, I'm willing to say yes to whatever you say. And then I certainly believe that, that he'll tell you and show you. Uh, and if it's medicine, then that's all you need to know. But it is uh, a great job. I'm so glad that I ended up here. I can't imagine doing anything else. You know, listening to Andrew, it reminds me of, you know, I, uh, the relationships that I have. Our job gives us the chance to be out there with our Catholicism. If I was an accountant, I don't think I'd have as many opportunities <laughs> to be out there. Now, every single encounter of every day, I get a chance to do something or say something Catholic. And uh, it, it, it's, it's wonderful. I can't imagine it being any better. Yeah, for me, 
it's great that when I go in a room, there's a patient there wanting to like me, ready to trust me immediately. They'll let me cut on their face within minutes of having met them. It's incredible. I get to cure cancer every day. I get to put people's faces back together so they look normal. I get to see the result of the work of my hands. I'm not an extroverted person, and I think God used medicine to form virtue in me to have to be on and positive with patient after patient after patient. Like Andrew said, it's a great vocation to get oneself into heaven, just like marriage is a great vocation to get yourself into heaven, especially if that's the one you're called to. So I couldn't give any better advice than my co-hosts have. It's what I tell my children. We, yes, it'd be great if one of you became a doctor or a priest or a sister, but it'll be even greater if you're doing whatever it is God wants you to be. So would I dissuade someone from going into medicine? No, but go in eyes open, knowing what it is that you're embracing. You know, Tom, I think as a corollary, we should say to our colleagues who are already in practice, if you don't feel like we feel, like we've talked about, there's a reason, and you need to figure out what that reason is. Are you not practicing in a way that's consistent with your faith? Are you not excited about the patients you're walking in to see because of the electronic medical record or where you work or the uniform they make you wear or something? Figure out what that is, and for the sake of the profession uh, and for the sake of your vocation, fix it. Uh, because on the other side, it could be so great. So, mamas, let your babies grow up to be doctors if that's what God wants them to do. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official CMA radio program coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want more information on those of us in the CMA, go to cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing a Catholic approach to depression with psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Cariotti. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.